KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Rest in peace, road user charge. San Diego scraps plans to make drivers pay by the mile instead of by the gallon. This clearly was not uh, buying them any goodwill with the public. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Carbon dioxide is the main driver of climate change. A new study looks at what role aerosols are playing as well. So aerosols actually only stay in the atmosphere for weeks to months, but because we're emitting them continuously, they have a big impact on our atmosphere. A look at what's driving record levels of unauthorized immigration on the southwestern border. And did you know the Army Corps of Engineers dabbles in archaeology? That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. San Diego County is no longer planning to charge motorists a fee for every mile they drive. The so-called road user charge had been a key component of the county's regional transportation plan. It was meant to help raise revenue for infrastructure and cut back on car travel, the county's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. Regional leaders voted Friday to kill the road user charge. But there are still big questions about what might take its place. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune environment reporter Josh Emerson-Smith. And Josh, welcome. Good to be here. Let's start with some definitions here. How much would this road user charge have been, and when might it have taken effect? It was supposed to come into effect in 2030, and it was going to be about three cents a mile. And as things stand now, legally at least, uh, the county could not impose this charge right today, right? What would have to change in order for it to actually be implemented? Well, the state has to come up with the plan of how to implement road user charges. They've had a pilot program since 2015, and they're still working out the kinks. And I believe there would actually have to be some legislation associated with that as well. So it's pretty far off in terms of having all all the details worked out. California already has a gas tax that funds a portion of our transportation infrastructure. So why this desire to switch to a new system of charging drivers by the mile instead of by the gallon? Well, it's to replace the dwindling revenue from the gas tax as more people drive electric cars and really as more people drive more fuel efficient cars the money that we collect from the fuel taxes has gone down. And so that's why we increased the fuel tax uh, a few years ago under SB1, but eventually we'll need something to replace it because people are expected to drive electric cars at an ever-increasing rate into the future. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria was one of the elected officials who wanted to strike this mileage fee from the regional transportation plan. And that, of course, is the long-range planning document that's put together by the agency SANDAG. What reason did Mayor Gloria give for his opposition to the charge? He said that it was uh, too burdensome on people 
uh, especially when the public transit infrastructure is yet to really be expanded. And it just, it seemed like uh, it was a very unpopular tax and the agency is trying to figure out how to gain public support for this. And this clearly was not uh, buying them any goodwill with the public. And politics seems to have played a big role in this decision. What was going on in the background as all of this has been happening? Well, it seems that uh, the conservative members of the board who opposed the plan from the beginning latched on to the road user fee as something that they could attack. And that uh, left the agency open to a lot of criticism. And they need public support, right? Because we can't forget, they need to increase taxes to make this a reality. And that's something that will need to go to the ballot. Now, there were a few board members of SANDAG and also some environmental organizations who wanted to keep the road user charge in place, or at least the plans for it in the future. Why was that? What did they say? Their take is that people who buy electric cars are usually more affluent and that they should pay their fair share for increasing transit and fixing sidewalks and putting in new bike lanes. And, but also there's this um, sense that this is the way that we can discourage people from driving, especially during peak hours. So this is a tool to change behavior. And that that was that's a big thing that environmental groups and some activists have seen as a tool that Sandag can use to reduce greenhouse gases. Now, taking this road user charge out of the future planning for our transportation system isn't all that simple, I think. What do Sandag staff have to do next? They have to redo the environmental analysis. So that's going to take about 12 months. And then they need to get approval from the California Air Resources Board so that's a state agency that had approved the plan in its initial incarnation. But now with these plans, they'll have to go back with the changes. They'll have to go back and get reapproval from the from the state. And how likely is that to happen? My understanding is that the state has said, you know, this is the plan that you presented with us the first time around, and, and they don't really want to see it change. What have they been saying so far? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. It's still a year away. Anything could happen. So I really wouldn't want to hazard a guess on that one. <laughs> All right. And I mentioned in my introduction that cars and trucks are the county's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. Do you think that we're really being honest with ourselves about how much we'll have to change our lifestyles in order to meet our climate goals? Or do we maybe have our heads in the sand with this? Uh, the state has said, CARB has said they want San Diego to reduce, let me see if I can remember this, per capita driving by 19% below a 2005 benchmark. And Sandag has said that they think they can meet that goal. And they crunched some numbers for last week's meeting. And they said if they round up, which apparently they're allowed to do, they can meet the 19 percent goal by uh, 2035. The question is whether 
CARB thinks that that's realistic, that even without the road user fee, that they could reach that. And if they agree with Sandag, yes, you're on track to meet that, they'll approve the plan. If they say, oh, no, it looks like you're going to blow the deadline for reducing driving, basically, then uh, they may not approve it. I mean, that that would be a big setback for the agency if that happened. And what would the consequences of that be if they don't get certification for their transportation plan? Well, the transportation plan gets redrafted on, on a pretty regular basis. So we'd have to go back to the drawing board, but we'd miss out on a lot of state and federal funding at a time when a lot of money is now flowing from the federal government under the infrastructure bill and SANDAG and other agencies in the region want to take advantage of that. And so not having a regional transportation plan that's certified would mean almost certainly we'd miss out on a ton of, of matching funds coming from the federal government. Well, definitely a story to keep watching. I've been speaking with Josh Emerson-Smith, senior environment reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And Josh, thanks for your reporting on this. Always good to be here. When talking about emissions and climate change, the conversation often focuses on carbon dioxide emissions. But a new study led by the University of Texas, Austin, and UC San Diego is bringing forward new information on aerosol emissions and their impact on climate and human health. I'm joined now by one of the study's lead authors, Gita Prasad, assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Gita, welcome to Midday Edition. Pleasure to be here. Can you start by explaining how aerosol emissions differ from carbon dioxide emissions? So when we talk about aerosol emissions, we're talking about things like soot, sulfur dioxide, basically these solid and liquid particles that end up in the air and create smog. And these aerosols are produced by many of the same human activities that produce carbon dioxide. So burning coal for electricity, burning diesel fuel for transportation, even burning agricultural waste to clear cropland. But a big difference between aerosols and greenhouse gases is how long they stay in the atmosphere. So aerosols actually only stay in the atmosphere for weeks to months, but because we're emitting them continuously, they have a big impact on our atmosphere. But greenhouse gases stay in the atmosphere for decades to centuries. And so the difference this creates is that aerosols have a very patchy distribution in our atmosphere. They stay concentrated near where we produce them. They don't have time to get very far away. And what that means is that the aerosols we're emitting, along with our carbon dioxide, actually have a very unique geographic pattern of how they're affecting our atmosphere, our air quality, our climate patterns, and ultimately our societal outcomes. What are you looking to find out with this research study? So when we talk about climate change, we're often thinking about emissions of carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping greenhouse gases. And people have been talking for a long time about the fact that the aerosols that are co-emitted with those greenhouse gases have major human health impacts. Scientists have been saying that we can get these huge human health co-benefits from cutting these human activities that would reduce both carbon dioxide and these aerosols. But one thing that often gets overlooked is that those aerosols can actually affect climate change in their own right. So they reflect and absorb sunlight, they change how clouds behave, and that can affect temperature, rainfall, weather patterns that also have impacts on agriculture and economic productivity and all these things we care about. So we wanted to understand if you take both those air quality and climate impacts of aerosols 
and think about this fact that where aerosols are emitted is going to change who feels their impacts. Can we map across the globe how those aerosols change the societal damages of our emissions? What does that add to the damages from the carbon dioxide that those aerosols are co-emitted with? And how might that change our understanding of the damages from our human activities that produce both of these types of emissions and potentially change our incentives to reduce those activities? You touched on this, but how do aerosols contribute to climate change? So aerosols actually can reflect some of the sunlight that comes into the Earth's system. And so that means that on average, they cool the climate. And so we actually think they've counteracted about half of the warming from greenhouse gases since the industrial era. But these aerosols can also absorb some of that sunlight. So they have very complicated impacts on the atmosphere. And because their impact on the atmosphere is so patchy, so located around where they're emitted, they can actually change rainfall patterns really strongly. And that can actually be really damaging. So aerosols are aerosol emissions from Europe are actually thought to have caused some of the droughts that happened in the Sahel region of Africa during the 1980s. They've been implicated in some of the changes in the South Asian monsoon that, you know, a billion people rely on for their livelihoods. So these aerosols are actually really strong players in the climate system, both in the way that they counteract the effect of greenhouse gases and in the way that they create their own unique risks through their effect on rainfall patterns. What are the most common emitters of aerosols today? So a lot of the major sources of aerosols are very similar to things you might hear talked about with carbon, carbon dioxide. So a big one is coal burning for electricity generation or for cooking in certain parts of the world or for heating in certain parts of the world. Diesel fuel in off-road vehicles is a big source of aerosols. Um, Often those are more poorly regulated than other forms of transportation. And agricultural waste burning to clear cropland or to burn waste products after harvest is actually another big source of aerosols. And those are all of the human sources of aerosols. They're also natural sources. So wildfires are actually a big source of what we might think of as natural emissions of aerosols, even though we're now realizing there may also be a human component to those emissions as well. What kinds of impacts did aerosols have on the regions you studied? Basically, what we did is we wanted to understand, we know that these aerosols have different impacts on the atmosphere depending on where they come from. So if we think about all of the different regions where these aerosols have come from in the past, so whether it's the U.S. or Western Europe or China or India, where it's coming from now, or places like East Africa, where we think these emissions might increase with industrialization, let's map how that changes the the air quality at the surface, which we know has big human health impacts how it changes these rates of cooling in different places, and how it changes these rainfall patterns that we know are really important. And so what we found is that depending on where you emit these aerosols, you get very different strengths and very different geographic distributions of these changes in air quality, rainfall, temperature. And we know that all of those factors really affect societal outcomes that we care about, things like infant mortality, how productive different crops are, how productive productive our overall economy is. What type of policy changes would you like to see as a result of this research? How can uh, governments better handle this problem? One of the benefits that the framework we've created provides is, is it lets us really create this global mapping of not just the impacts from the carbon dioxide we're emitting, but also these other pollutants, these aerosols that are coming along with the carbon dioxide and creating their own suite of impacts. 
And so one of the things that we can actually do with this framework is we can map what the so total societal impacts are of different policy approaches we're taking. So one example is the Paris Climate Agreement. One of the approaches taken in the Paris Climate Agreement is what's called the fair share approach, where all countries try to cut their carbon dioxide emissions to the same uh, carbon dioxide emissions per capita. But what we found is that that actually doesn't reduce these aerosol-driven impacts like infant mortality or crop impacts compared to our current conditions. And that's because that approach actually targets emissions cuts in places that already aren't producing that much aerosol and aren't don't have that many aerosol-driven damages. So one of the things that we're hoping is that this framework can help us design our policy so that we get the maximum societal benefits and allows us to see places where we can target cutting these aerosol emissions so that we can reduce some of these impacts. I've been speaking with Gita Persad, professor at University of Texas at Austin and co-lead author of a new study on aerosol emissions published in Science Advances. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. Unauthorized immigration across the southwest border is at historic levels. Numbers released by U.S. Customs and Border Protection show there have been more than 1.9 million unauthorized migrant crossings in the last year. Joining me to talk about what that means for San Diego is iNewsource border and immigration reporter Sofia Mejias-Pasco. Sofia, welcome. Thanks for having me. So while the number of unauthorized migrant crossings along the southwest border is at an historic high, the numbers of people crossing in the San Diego region is not. So what are your key takeaways from these new numbers? Yeah, that's right. San Diego is just one of nine sectors along the U.S.-Mexico border, and we are seeing unauthorized crossings that are pretty low compared to other areas of the border. So in the last 11 months, Border Patrol had more than 160,000 encounters with individuals uh, they suspected of crossing into the U.S. illegally here in San Diego. But when you look at other areas like the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, they had more than 440,000 encounters. So you can see that San Diego isn't a major driver of these record numbers that we're seeing, but it is true that since 2020, we've seen a significant increase in unauthorized migrant crossings. Do we know what's driving this increase in unauthorized migration? Yeah, so there's a few things to keep in mind. This year, we saw many more Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans uh, than in the previous fiscal year. The CBP commissioner blamed failing communist regimes in those countries for the nearly twofold increase that we saw this year from last year. And it's also important to keep in mind that when we're talking about encounters, this is a measure of the number of times Border Patrol finds someone in the U.S. who they believe does not have permission to be here. It's not a measure of how many individual migrants are crossing. So there's been discussion and debate among experts about how many of these encounters were repeat crossers, the same person making multiple attempts. 
And many experts say that Title 42, an emergency health policy implemented at the start of the pandemic, encouraged repeat crossings. Hmm. So if we had two million crossings, those could potentially be only one million migrants who each cross twice, right? Yeah, I mean, there's different measures for what uh, CBP calls recidivism, repeat crossing. CBP, sorry, said that in the fiscal year 2021, there was a 25% recidivism rate. But there's another study that came out recently that puts that number at 60%. And those studies use different methods. But it's important in noting that, yeah, this number that we're seeing, there are repeat crossers uh, that are accounting for at least a portion of this number. Now, San Diego immigration officials are very busy processing a lot of these migrants. Tell me about that. Yeah, I spoke with Chief Patrol Agent Aaron Heike about what's going on at the border in San Diego right now. He said his team is pushing very hard to deal with the numbers that uh, they're seeing. He says that they encounter between five to 700 individuals each day just in the San Diego sector. And on top of that, they're bringing in migrants who have been apprehended in other parts of the border to help take the pressure off of areas like Yuma, Arizona and Texas, who are dealing with much higher encounters right now. Now, the Biden administration has faced a lot of criticism on its failure to act on immigration. You asked Chief Heitke for his perspective on what needs to happen in order to address these huge numbers of migrants crossing the southern border. What did he tell you? Yeah, his answer was clear and concise. He said that comprehensive immigration reform is really what Border Patrol needs Uh, to help address the number of migrants they're seeing right now. Um, You know, he said that a lot of the agencies, too, that work with Border Patrol, uh, helping to process migrants and document them, they're also, you know, at capacity and they weren't designed to deal with the capacity that they're seeing right now. So I think the fact that he's asking for reform really speaks to the urgency and the need that uh, the U.S. has for something more concrete to address uh, migrant crossings. You also spoke with a sociologist who said that he thinks the U.S. just needs to reorient its perspective on on uh, illegal immigration or unauthorized crossings. What did he tell you? Yeah, I spoke from Greg Prieto from University of San Diego, and he said that, you know, we have seen very high numbers of encounters in the past before. Yes, this is a historic high that we're seeing right now. But in, you know, the 80s and 90s, we also saw really significant encounters at the border And more recently, with uh, the tens of thousands of Ukrainians that arrived at the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, U.S. did sort of pivot its policy to give parole to many of these Ukrainians. So he's saying that the U.S. has demonstrated an ability to provide a humanitarian response to arrivals and crossings at the border, and that that's what we need to do in this situation as well. I've been speaking with iNews source border and immigration reporter Sofia Mejias Pasco. And Sofia, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
The Army Corps of Engineers is probably best known for its work on waterways. Think locks, dams, and levees. But those projects also unearth many historical artifacts that the Corps must document and maintain. In some cities, the Corps is pairing that archaeological work with job training for veterans. From St. Louis, Eric Schmidt reports for the American Homefront Project. Lab technician Richard Schmidt is hard at work, carefully rubbing away some old adhesive on a set of 35-year-old documents. You can kind of see it, I don't know. It's just sticky. (laughs) Schmidt, a Navy veteran, bounced through a few jobs before landing here at the Veterans Curation Program, where today he's cleaning the field notes from an Army Corps project in Pennsylvania. This used to be a lot dirtier, so I took off all the mud that was loose. Elsewhere in the small office in downtown St. Louis, other veterans like Chris Miller rustle through bags filled with small artifacts. A lot of just what people would call rocks. A lot of rocks. There are rare objects too, like arrowheads and pottery shards. Every artifact is weighed, labeled, cataloged in a computer database, and eventually photographed. It's vital work, says Sharon Kenobi, an anthropologist with the St. Louis District of the Army Corps of Engineers. And the Corps has turned to former service members to do it. Twice a year, Kenobi's lab brings in a new set of vets to serve as paid lab technicians. We want to make sure that we have employment, we want to provide job skills for veterans while they rehabilitate these at-risk Army Corps of Engineers collections. So it's, it's kind of a, a two-fold deal. Now, you might be wondering, what part of working with rocks translates into job skills? Lab technician Miller says the work focuses on records management, which applies beyond archaeology. There are other jobs out there besides this that deal with archives and collections of some sort. Coming from an infantry background, I never thought this was possible for a grunt, basically, like... That's not what we were ever taught. Miller served 10 years in the Army, including three deployments to Iraq and one to South Korea. More recently, he says he's worked as a truck driver and on river barges, but his body can't handle those roles anymore. In the lab, he's doing less physical work and gets coached on things like resumes, cover letters, interviews, and networking. Before this, I've never dealt with a resume or anything. Like, I've always been in high turnover jobs. So you just go and apply, you get hired, and start working. Schmidt also appreciates this attention on career development and says it's something he wishes he had sooner after serving six years as a bosun's mate in the Navy. And then when I got out, I was just like in California, no family. I was more focused on finding what I was passionate about, which is a good thing, but I wasn't focused on a long-term plan. Schmidt says the attention he's getting now keeps him locked on his goal of going into cybersecurity after he finishes up school at Lindenwood University. Kenobi, who manages the nationwide Veterans Curation Program, says it's seen more than 700 vets since it started in 2009, and more than 90% of them have landed full-time jobs or continued to further education afterward. You know, you have people who turn out to be chefs. Uh, they have people who, you know, start their own business or, you know, go on to work at a museum or archives, but it's not necessarily archaeology. St. Louis is one of the Corps' four locations that does this work with veterans. The others are in Georgia, Virginia, and California, and temporary locations pop up too. Right now, they're at universities in Arkansas and Texas. I'm Eric Schmid in St. Louis.
This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. The 65th annual Monterey Jazz Festival was held this weekend, 60 years after the festival premiered an unprecedented, unusual musical. It was called The Real Ambassadors, and it featured a glittering array of jazz titans, including Louis Armstrong. This was the height of the civil rights movement, and the musical cast artists of different races, challenging racism and social injustice through jazz. A new story from the Kitchen Sisters dives into the making of The Real Ambassadors, which was written by Dave and Iola Brubeck, along with Louis Armstrong. Here's an excerpt from that story. The Jazz Ambassadors, Duke Ellington, Dave Brubeck, Dizzy Gillespie, were chosen to go overseas on behalf of Uncle Sam. My name is Keith Hatchek, author of The Real Ambassadors. Dave and Iola Brubeck and Louis Armstrong challenge segregation. These jazz ambassadors, who were largely African-American, were really treated like royalty overseas. But when they got home, they were immediately subjected to the same kind of Jim Crow. Oh, Mr. Armstrong, you'll have to come in through the loading dock at the Waldorf Astoria. You can't actually come in through the front door, even though you're playing here. That was an injustice that really started gnawing at my dad. I'm Chris Brubeck, the third child of Dave and Iola Brubeck. My mom's reaction was to write The Real Ambassadors. Before they left in 1958 on the tour, they had to go to a briefing. A very sort of officious man says, when controversy comes up, you head in the opposite direction. You should just be smiling and playing your music. Remember who you are. Remember who you are and what you represent. Never face a problem. Always circumvent. Stay away from issues. Be discreet. When controversy enters, you retreat. Remember who you are and what you represent. Always be a credit to your government. No matter what you say of what you do, the eyes of the world are watching you. Remember. It begins by talking about Thomas Jefferson and Lincoln and the founding principles, but by the end, they're swinging and singing about Count Basie and Jelly Roll, what it means to live a full and good life. Jelly Roll and Basie helped us to invent. A weapon that no other nation has, especially the Russians can't clean jazz. Remember who you 
The truth is, Louis Armstrong was the one who influenced the State Department Jazz Ambassador Tours. My name's Ricky Riccardi. I am Director of Research Collections for the Louis Armstrong House Museum. 1955, Louis embarked on a three-month tour of Europe. There was literally riots in Germany, crowds screaming for him in Paris, and there was such a buzz that Columbia Records records this album called Ambassador Satch. The uh, New York Times, at the end of 1955, wrote, America's greatest weapon is a blue note in a minor key, and right now its most effective ambassador is Louis Armstrong. That really got the State Department involved. Passport. Shot. Identification. Visas. 1957, the State Department was getting ready to send him to Russia, but that's when Armstrong put his career on the line to speak out against racial injustice in Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock, Arkansas, and the first phase of the trouble. The white population are determined to prevent colored students from going to the school their own children. Armstrong had not spoken out before, and he had been getting some criticism from younger African-American commentators throughout the 1950s. When he turned on the TV in his hotel room and he saw the tragedy that was unfolding in Little Rock with the effort to uh, integrate Central High School, he immediately called the hotel front desk and said, I need to dictate a telegram to the White House. National newspapers published the story, Satchmo calls Ike a coward. If these people are allowed to spit on a little black girl who can't even go to school, a person like me doesn't even have a country. What are you going to tell the Russians when they ask you about the Little Rock incident? It all depends what time they send me over there. I don't think they should send me tomorrow unless they straighten that mess down south. That was one more piece of inspiration that they used in creating the character of Pops for the real ambassadors. One, two, three. I'm the real ambassador. It is evident I wasn't sent by government to take your place. Armstrong's band, the All-Stars, it was an integrated band. He often had white musicians. When they would tour the South, he could not play with that band in New Orleans, his home state of Louisiana. So I represent the government. The government don't represent some policies I'm in 1949, being crowned the king of the Mardi Gras, did not be able to give a free concert. This was tearing him up. Segregation is a legality, isn't it? After Armstrong spoke out against Little Rock, he kind of made it his policy to stop speaking out until March of 1965. During the march on Selma, Alabama, Bloody Sunday. Armstrong was on his way to go behind the Iron Curtain for the very first time. Reporters in Denmark kind of got up the nerve to ask him, well, we don't see you out there marching. You know, what are you doing for the cause? And he said, listen, the best thing I can do is play my music. And if I was going to go out there and march, first thing they would do is punch me in the mouth. Without my lips, I can't do what I do best for the cause. The reporters said, oh, you really think they would beat Louis Armstrong? And he said, they would beat Jesus if he was black and marched. I would it in. Ain't got a friend, my only sin is in my skin, what did I do? Every night during that tour, he does, what did I do to be so black and blue? Which he had originally recorded in 1929, it's known as the first protest song. In the case of my father, he had Eugene Wright, who was a great bass player. He's 
African-American. There was a whole big Southern tour, and then the, the head of the school, oh man, you know, you know, we can't have black people playing with white people. The jazz musicians helped the schools back on track. One of our last concerts, students were stamping on the floor, and we were in the locker room underneath, and it was such a roar of feet because we were an hour late. The president of the school was talking to the governor. He came back and said to me, we don't want another Little Rock. You go on, but keep your bass player in the back. So the second tune, I told Eugene, your microphone is broken. You'll have to move out in front of the band and use my speaking mic, and I'd like you to, to do a solo. <laughs> and boy, that, that auditorium went crazy. It was integrated with such joy. I'd get to a concert, and if it was segregated, I wouldn't play. Louis Armstrong wouldn't play. The Real Ambassadors was produced by The Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson, and Brandy Howell in collaboration with Jackson Spinner. We're going to keep talking about jazz now with an encore performance from an interview we first bought you last summer. San Diego jazz pianist Joshua White thrives on improvising and working out music with other musicians during performances. For our influential music series, he picked five iconic local musicians whose work has impacted him and the jazz scene in San Diego and beyond. Here's Joshua White in his own words. Outside of a musical collaboration, I'm always interested in working with people who have a interesting perspective and a way of communicating that perspective and who are interested in collaboration, but also, you know, have an interesting way of putting their ideas together in the moment and have the capacity to respond to any given piece of information, any given stimuli at any given time. You know, exploring the ideas in the moment. I think I met Charles McPherson back in 2003 at the inaugural year of the UCSD Jazz Camp. And just so happens that that program, I got to meet some of the greatest internationally touring artists who also live here in San Diego. And one of those individuals was the great Charles McPherson. And it was truly an honor to meet him and to hear him live in person at that formative time in my development. So in meeting Charles McPherson and learning more about him, his history and his music, I immediately went to the record store and I would say this particular recording suddenly was the first recording that I purchased by Charles McPherson. The record 
blew me away. I mean, just hearing him in person is amazing as well as getting the records. And thankfully over the years, I've had a chance to collaborate with him on many different occasions. And, you know, it's always been a great and wonderful learning experience to be next to a real master of this musical tradition that, you know, is most commonly referred to as jazz. I first met Holly Hoffman at that same music program at UCSD in 2003. And I would say that our connection was through the flute because at that time I was playing the flute as well. What I like about Further Adventures is that it has an interesting musical form and it has a lot of fun sections to play over. And that's really what, in jazz or improvised music, it's not only do we enjoy the melodies and the chords and things like that, but they present an interesting area from which we can improvise and create from that framework. I always equate working with Mark Dresser and his music and his bands as sort of my college level experience in music theory and composition because in my personal experience, he's been one of my favorite composers and he writes these such interesting melodies and harmonies and everything. He's been one of the musicians I would say has opened up a new world to me in terms of what I thought was possible in music and improvisation and in composition. And this particular song, Parawaltz, we've played this many, many times together. I've always told him that this particular composition of his is my favorite melody by far that he's written. I love the chords and I love the harmony and how everything, you know, just works together in like a harmonious fashion. And I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to collaborate and work with Mark on any project. Like if he has a recording project and he asks me if I'm available or a live performance, I'm there. And if I have a project, I know he's going to bring something remarkable and truly special to the occasion. Carried you halfway across the river on my neck, and you stunned me. You stunned me anyway. I first met Janae Kendrick, so it's an interesting story. I was playing with Gilbert Castellanos at a jam session, I believe it might have been on Thursdays or Wednesday nights, many years ago. It was at Seven Grand in North Park. So I had been playing there for a few years already. And at a jam session, it's customary that musicians or whomever would like to sit in, you know, once invited, they're able to sit in and join the house band. So I had never met Jane, and she came up to the bandstand and said, I'm a vocalist, I would like to sit in. So she told me just to start wherever 
I would like to start. And I just started in my natural abstract space and I wanted to see where she would go with that. And she just jumped right in and just floored me. And I knew from then, if I had a vocalist. How'd I ignore all the things you taught me in the past? What made it worse was knowing that feeling was my last. She just floors me every time that we work together because not only is she a brilliant musician, but she's just a wonderful person and she adds such a great energy and a great spirit to every ensemble that we're able to work together. I also met Mike Wofford that first year at the UCSD Jazz Camp in 2003. And really, you can pick any recording from Mike Wofford and you're going to get, you know, a world of knowledge from his playing. But I think that his arrangement of the old standard, My Old Flame, just is characteristic of his grace and nuance at the piano. I don't know that I can see into the future in terms of where live performance is going post-pandemic with the introduction of more virtual performances, because quite honestly, I prefer just performing live as to performing virtually, because I'm open to the opportunity of both experiences, the virtual as well as the live, but I will always be in favor of the live performances and letting it just live in that moment. And then once it's gone, it's gone. That was local jazz pianist Joshua White. He'll be performing with the Joshua White Trio on October 11th at 6.30 at the San Diego Central Library. You can find more details as well as a playlist of all of these tracks on our website at kpbs.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 